Uh, it's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, thank you for having me, Blake, and uh, the elders here. <clears throat> we're going to be in Haggai uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Uh, we're actually going to spend uh, most of the time in uh, verses 3 through 9, but it'll be Haggai 2, uh, verses 3 through 9. Uh, let's pray on behalf of the Word. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, giving us your Son as the, the Word incarnate and for revealing things to us through him and uh, through your prophets. Um, Lord, I pray that you would bless preaching, uh, that your word would be clear and powerful, and that you'd send the Spirit uh, to give us ears to hear and uh, convict us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in Haggai 2, uh, verses 1 through 9, I'll read uh, 1 through 9 to us now. In the seventh month of the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the son of the prophet. <clears throat> Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it, nothing, is it not nothing as in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So this, the prophecy of Haggai uh, comes to Israel around 520 B.C. This is the second year of Darius' reign, uh, who was the king of Persia at the time, and had released um, some Israelites to return to the land they had been exiled from. Uh, so the exiles are returning to the land, and the temple is going to be rebuilt after it was destroyed 60 years prior. And so the last temple that they had standing was the temple that Solomon had built, the temple under Solomon uh, that had been built. And the glory of that temple was what was in the minds of those that had returned uh, to the land. The foundation of the temple at this time had been built, but no further progress had been made yet. Uh, and so this whole uh, thrust of this portion of Haggai is, uh, is a call to God's people to trustingly rebuild the temple uh, so through right worship they can be reoriented towards Yahweh. And so the whole center of the life of Israel is the temple. Jerusalem is the center of the life of Israel, and Israel is to be the center of the world as in, in the Old Covenant. And so worship in the temple and right worship of the Lord was the thing that was going to set Israel apart and draw nations into the glory of God. And so having a temple that is built in such a way that reflects this glory is important uh, to the Israelites, and it's important to the Lord to have something reflecting his glory in the midst of his people. And so they're seeing right now that uh, this temple, they've been working on it, it's just the foundations, they've been clearing rubble from the old destroyed remnants, and it doesn't look anything like it's going to match up to what Solomon's temple was. Um, it's going to be a shadow of, of what had been, is what it seems to be at this point. Um, but the Lord wants his people to be encouraged to do good work for his house, and the, which is the temple. 
because he remembers and keeps his covenant. And so because the Lord is a covenant-keeping God who makes promises and keeps those promises, he's encouraging, he's going to encourage the people to do good work and to continue to build and be steadfast in their labor uh, because he is steadfast. And so to kind of distill the main idea of this speech, so this is, this is a, a contained speech uh, that we have from the Lord. It starts with um, him saying to Haggai to write this down, and then it's going to end, um, and, and verse 10 begins a separate speech on a different day. And so this whole contained speech portion we have here um, has a kind of a singular idea, is that God's covenant home escalates in glory. So this is the undergirding kind of a thesis of God's of speech. And uh, to sort of unpack this is that the glory of covenant history is going to provide people with a concrete hope in, with space-time momentum. So what that means is, is that because God has made his covenant with Israel and has kept his covenant and done things and kept promises and delivered them and provided for them, because they have all this history, they have hundreds of years uh, of history behind them, um, they now have something to pull on and something to remember and be inspired and have momentum for uh, when they're called upon again uh, to obey and, and hear the voice of the Lord, hear the word of God, and then obey. Um, uh, another thing we're seeing here is that God's glory and covenant are manifested in the center of worship. So where the worship of the triune God is performed is where the center of, of culture and good things and, and good creation come out of. So God's, God's worshiping center is, uh, is where the, the glory of his covenant is going to be seated. Uh, and also God refines old things to bring in new and greater things that build on eternal foundations. Uh, so in as much as God is conserving um, the, the eternal promises that he has, the, the, the word of God being the eternal thing that all good things are built on, um, that is the foundation. But um, in, as things are built on that, um, some things are refined and thrown away. Some things are shaken off in order to make room for new and better things. And so there's an eternal foundation that's being improved upon. And this is, we see this with how scripture is compiled, that over thousands of years we have a progress in revelation where we have more and more of the glory of God revealed to us in his word. And as, as we're going to see a microcosm of this in Israel is that the glory of the center of worship is going to improve as Israel grows up as a nation. And so it's still the word of God that's calling them to be a people and identifying them as a people. Uh, but that word of God is going to manifest different um, sorts of furniture. And it, that furniture gets better and better. And so he burns old things away and builds new things. And so this conservation, refinement, and progress is how God builds a house of glory. So let's begin in, in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it nothing in your eyes? And so this is uh, how he initiate. This is where we're going to uh, spend most of our time. We're going to kind of breeze through verses 1 and 2. So they're kind of setting up the speech uh, and move on to verse 3. That, that what's happening here is uh, he's addressing the leaders. He's addressing Zerubbabel, the governor of Israel, and he's addressing the high priest, um, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and he's also addressing the people. So everyone is getting addressed, uh, starting with the leaders and working down to the congregation. And, uh, and what he's doing here, he's not asking a rhetorical question. He's not asking, who among you had seen the old temple, um, you know, 
don't judge this one. You don't even know what the old one looks like. This is an actual question. There are people still alive in the midst that saw the Temple of Solomon, and they're seeing um, what looks to be an unimpressive start to a new temple. So this, isn't, this doesn't seem to be a question that God's asking rhetorically. He's asking them, are you going to look at this and see what you see with your eyes, or are you going to look at this and hear my promise and then see what I'm seeing, what's, what's, what's going to come? So there are people in Israel um, that had seen the Temple of Solomon built, and what God wants them to hear now is listen to my word and see beyond what you had once seen. There's a real temptation um, that when we see things that look pathetic or not as they once were or not as we were told they once were, uh, there's a real temptation to despair and, and lose hope. Um, we often you know, um, be skeptical of small things um, being used to magnify the Lord. And, uh, and, and uh, we'll, we'll look back and, and maybe have nostalgia be the governor on, our, on what we're walking by and not, not faith. So there's a tension here being drawn between perceived reality and God's promise. This is what he says. Is it nothing in your eyes? Is this nothing in your eyes right now, the start of this temple? It's nothing to you. There is a sense in which this is a meager beginning. Um, but what the Lord is calling them to is, again, to walk by faith and not by sight, to, to not dwell on what is small right now, not dwell on what is less than what used to be, uh, but to work diligently because the Lord keeps his covenant and has brought them out of Egypt. And so he wants them uh, to continue on in, in good work because it is going to be more glorious. When this temple is finished, it actually is literally more glorious than the temple that Solomon had, had built. Um, this is going somewhere. These aren't empty promises. This isn't going to be like a, 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 you know, a bait and switch where he's like, see, it's better because of this subtle thing I did here. It's actually going to be better and more glorious. He's, he, God doesn't overpromise and underdeliver. And so this motif uh, that will continue is the glory of the house. The house and glory are paired uh, three times in this portion of speech. And, and so we see um, that, that God wants to fill his house with glory. He wants to build something and then fill it. He wants to create a form and then fill the form. And we're going to see this covenant pattern um, be how God does this. This is how God fills his house with glory is through a covenant pattern of death, resurrection, and glorification. This is, what, this is how God's kind of built his people through time, where they die out of Eden. Um, they uh, resurrect with uh, the promised seed of Abel, who's shedding his blood, of then Seth, and then they grow up into, into Abraham. And so now they have a new promise, and Abraham, who's going to bring a nation. Um, but Abraham has to, has to offer Isaac up, so has to die. The promise has to die, and then it's resurrected. And Jacob is the one who receives the multitude of sons and begins the nation that Abraham was promised. And so we see this death, resurrection, and glorification cycle. You even see this with uh, the tabernacle. So they die, they go down into the wilderness, they come up out of the wilderness into the land, and now they have a tabernacle, a movable skin tent um, in which to worship God, and God's presence will be with them. And so they came out of death in, in bondage and slave to Egypt. They go down into the wilderness, and they resurrect up into the promised land with the presence of God. So now they have a glorified presence of God with them. And then when the tabernacle's removed, um, in the kingly reign, we have the tabernacle's removed, we have resurrection of the temple, and then God's glory fills the temple. And so this is the pattern God uses to glorify and intensify his people and his covenant. 
And so, um, and then this is, so this is what he's going to call on uh, in our next portion, verses 4, four and 5. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. And so again, the Lord is encouraging the leaders and all the people to be strong and work because the Lord is with them via the covenant. The covenant means bonding. God has literally bonded himself to his people. And so now they can do good work. You can't do good work unless we're empowered by something. Um, when we work in our own flesh, that's the stuff that gets burned away. When he's going to shake the world, the stuff that falls off are things that were not made um, through the empowerment of the Spirit, through the work of the Lord, through the hand of God. Those things are the things that don't, don't last, that don't sustain. And so he made... Um, so this covenant he's made with his people when he brought them out of Egypt is the thing he's calling them back to. So remember how he sent you down to Egypt to make you into a nation uh, and then brought you out and called you out, defeated the powers and principalities of Egypt, brought you through the wilderness. I fed you and I gave you water to drink from a rock and I, and I looked after you. I tended to you um, like little lambs. So don't fear because I'm, I've always been with you. So the Lord calls to the stand this covenant history to offer hope and motivation of continued faithfulness and glory. This is his witness. He says, look at the covenant I have always kept with you and trust me that this is going to be good work that I'm providing for you. Within verses uh, four and five, the phrase declares the Lord occurs uh, three times. And we're going to see this, I think it's a total of eight times throughout this passage. There's some iteration of declares the Lord or says the Lord. And this doesn't seem to be accidental. Um, there, there should be a few things we're coming, getting from this, is that God's word is effective. So when the word of the Lord declares something, it's doing something. God doesn't have vain speech. He doesn't waste air. Uh, the Holy Spirit does not waste breath. When the, when the word is spoken, things happen. There's something changes. Uh, God's word is creative. It makes new reality. By the word of the Lord... Everything was made. This is Genesis 1, chapter 1, is that the word of the Lord proceeds and it makes stuff happen. It builds universes. It builds the cosmos. It makes stars and gold and rivers and mountains. These things come out of the mouth of the Lord. And so when the Lord speaks, he makes new things come into existence. He makes new reality. This is what he's doing here. In a, in a way, when he says, remember my covenant, fear not, and do good work, by him saying that, it makes the work possible. It's not possible without the command to do good work. If he had, David wanted to build a temple, but the word of God prohibited him from building a temple. So it wasn't, it wasn't the lack of material. It was the lack of proclamation of God's word to build the temple to begin with. So if God didn't want a temple built now, he, it wouldn't be built. His word is what empowers the building. So by my word, listen to my word, and new reality will come into existence. This is what... This is what prophecy is supposed to do. It's supposed to make new reality. So when someone carries in the word of the Lord, when Haggai delivers the word to the people, it's ushering in something new. It's making something. And God's word is the foundation of covenant. This is how Abraham's covenant is cut. God makes a promise. He says promises to Abraham, and Abraham trusts the promise. So God makes the promise with Abraham by his, through his word, through speaking to Abraham and giving him promises. And so these are, these are, this is why it's important to 
pay mind to when the Lord is declaring things, because uh, his speech is actually going to do stuff. His speech is effective. There is no such thing as, even, and we see this with ourselves, right? There is a way in which you're imaging this um, in, a, in a shadow form, is that, um, you know, people say, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Some of the most damaging things in this world are the words of people. Um, our words actually can make or break uh, people's lives. Think about parents and children. The words of parents to a child will, will shape and form how they turn out more than almost anything else. Loving kindness and tender tones to our children do more to communicate love and affection um, than bringing home groceries every week, right? Uh, there are hungry children with loving parents that will turn out healthier than, than these than children that grow up in suburbs that feel abandoned by their parents because they don't talk to them anymore. Um, there's, a real, there's a real power in word, and this is what the Lord is showing us. By us bearing his image, we should pay credence to the word um, of the Lord and how we bear words, not to speak in vain. The governor and the high priest, um, these are the leaders at the time, so there's, there's no king. Um, the governor, Zerubbabel, has been installed by Darius, uh, and so there's no king in Israel anymore, no one sitting on the throne. Um, and the high priest, uh, and then the people are called to be strong. So this is kind of the, the ordering, is that there's a civil magistrate that's addressed, there's a high priest that's addressed, and then the congregation uh, is addressed. There may be something uh, to the ordering that has a relation to redemptive history, uh, but we don't want to overstretch something uh, like this as well. Um, so it may be in, you know, uh, echoing that we're past this era of kings, and we're in the time of the prophets, and we're kind of waiting. There's still an expectancy for Jesus, for David's son, to take the throne eternally. There might be something there. Um, but again, we don't want to overstretch something like that. Um, there is something with the high priest, though. Um, the high priest is named Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. Uh, Joshua is Hebrew for Jesus. Jesus is uh, the Greek iteration of Joshua. And uh, so Joshua, the high priest, is the son of Jehozadak. And Jehozadak means Jehu is righteous. And so it seems that there, there could be some, some similarities here with Melchizedek, um, the king of righteousness. And so Jehozadak, Joshua being the son of Jehu is righteous, and Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who is the king of righteousness. So there, there might be something here where we're getting some echoes of the stuff that's happening while this Joshua, son of Jehozadak, is priest. There's going to be something like this happening when Jesus is initiated as the new high priest, the eternal high priest, um, that is greater and better than. And so this is because we see this portion of Haggai cited in Hebrews 12:26. And so the things that are going to be shaken in Hebrews 12:26, there there seems to be some some material that's getting shared here. And so Joshua, Jesus, son of Jehozadak, um, could be giving us some tips like, hey, there's going to be another high priest who's a king of righteousness, whose name is Jesus, Joshua. Also, and when he comes in, when he's the priest in the new temple, things are going to happen. Things are going to get shaken up. And so um, there's, there's, there's a lot here between Haggai 2 and uh, Hebrews 12, 26, um, where I believe uh, you guys are at right now. We're blazing preaching through uh, Hebrews, um, Hebrews 12, 26, uh, that things will be shaken. And so we'll uh, spend some more time with that a little later on. And so, um, so, but the promise is still this, this greater temple. So he's saying to the governor, to the high priest, and to the people, do good work, keep working. There's going to be, this temple is going to be big. It's going to, I'm going to bring glory to my house. 
So this greater temple that is to be built will be made using the people, the assembly. And so again, we're seeing some, 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 some transition material into the new covenant that it's the congregation, the people of God that are going to do stuff to make a temple for the Lord. That it's the people that are going to help bring glory into the house of God. They're to hear the declared word and then do competent work uh, because the Lord is with them and they have his word. In Hebrew, the word for hear, shema, is the same word for obey. Shema, it's the same word. And so when, when in the Old Covenant, in Hebrew, in the, in the Hebrew language, if you heard something, it meant that you obeyed that thing. And so there's a really close connection that we don't have with the English language between receiving word and doing word. Um, like we'll say often, we'll have to ask our kids, you know, did you listen to me? I listened. Well, you didn't do what I asked. Well, I, you didn't hear me. So that we have multiple words for it, and it's not helpful sometimes. Um, but this is what uh, a Hebrew would see, is that if they heard the word of God, it meant that they obeyed. So when God says, hear my word, what he's saying is, hear what I'm saying and do what I'm saying. Hear and obey. It's, it's, they're intermixed. So um, when Abraham hears God promise um, something to him, when Abraham hears God say, offer me Isaac, it's not enough for him to say, I received the word and it hit my eardrums and intellectually I have understood the words. If he's hearing it, it means he's going to take his son up to a mountain and put him on an altar and prepare to stab him with a knife. That's what it means to hear the word of the Lord. And so they're going to hear the word and they're going to do good work because they heard God speak. They're given promise that the spirit is in their midst so that when the temple is finished, his presence will fill it. So this, what this means is that when they do spend years and years building up a temple, it's not going to be a vacant stone house. That the, He's saying, my spirit's in your midst. He's waiting for a house. Build him a house so I can fill it. This is the, the forming and filling um, that we also see with God's, God's covenant. Just as Elijah, when Elijah's facing down the prophets of Baal, he has to build the altar first. And he puts his meat and the water on and he stokes it. And then the fire descends. Right? It's... God doesn't have fire, you know, waiting next door. And then um, Elijah has to quickly build an altar together. He wants, he wants faithful work to be done. And then the spirit descends on it. Uh, in, a, in the same way, the disciples were formed as apostles um, in Acts. And then the spirit des- descends and gives them uh, gifts at Pentecost. Right? God forms his these new foundations of this new thing he's making. Jesus forms it with the disciples and apostles and then sends the Spirit. So there's forming and filling. Um, and so we are to form our lives similarly around right, right worship. So by worshiping rightly, we're forming ourselves to look like God wants us to look. And then we're filled with the Spirit in a way because the, the cracks and crevices of bent humanity are being slowly taken out and, and put back into right shape because we're worshiping the triune God as he has asked us to. We're coming in spirit and in truth. Uh, we're hearing and receiving the word and the, and the elements. Uh, we confess our sins. We sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And these are the things that the Lord has instructed us to do when we gather, when he calls us together, to form ourselves as his people so that he can then fill us to do good work Monday through Saturday. Come back again on Sunday. Reform yourselves. Be filled. Go do good work. And so this is, again, like a microcosm of what it means to be a person of God, is that you're formed by his word and you're filled by his spirit and you do work in his name. 
These are the things that God wants us to do so we can look more like his son. He wants us to look like Jesus. And this presence, this this being filled, is going to keep us from fear. We won't be afraid to do good work. Fear not the sight of tragedy or trouble or trial in front of you because the presence of the Lord is sufficient. Fear not the pagan hordes spitting at the temple stones and fear not fools. Fear God alone and build his temple in a like manner. That's how he gives his new promise. So verses 6, verse 6 and 7. For thus says the Lord of hosts. So he's saying, fear not. And now here's something fresh. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I'll shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So the, the curious thing is that this type of shaking has happened before. He says, yet again, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the the sea and the dry land. Uh, So um, I think this might kind of disrupt our idea of what it would mean to hear God say he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. What does it mean when he's shaking the sea and the land? If this has happened before, what is is he alluding to? Um, I think one example we might be able to kind of safely assume um, the Lord has in mind when he's saying, I'm going to shake again, is the Exodus. Um, he's just cited, I brought you out of Egypt. Remember my promises. Yet again, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. And so when he's, when he, what took place at the Exodus is he shook the natural order. Uh, he shook the sea and the dry land. He parted the Red Sea. Uh, he shook Mount Sinai by descending with his presence. Um, again, in, in uh, Hebrews uh, 12, 18 through 21, there's um, a... a a contrast between Sinai and the new city. And Sinai is described as a, a place of gloom and darkness and a trembling voice and a shaking. Um, and so he shakes the sea and the dry land. He parts the Red Sea. He shakes the mountain, Mount Sinai with his presence. Uh, the Lord shook the heavens and the earth <clears throat> by overthrowing the pagan gods of Egypt through the 10 plagues. There was a direct assault on the Egyptian, uh, the, the gods of, the, of, of Egypt. The, the ten plagues. And so he's shaking the heavens and the earth. He's disrupting the authorities of Egypt, the celestial authorities that the Egyptians looked to. God trashed them. He threw them down to the earth. And so he's shaking um, the powers and principalities in the Exodus, as well as the natural order. Egypt was shook loose of their treasure. This is what he says. He's going to shake the nations and the treasure shall come in. So he shakes Egypt loose of their treasures. Through the plagues, the people are rattled. And so now when the Israelites go to them, um, they, they hand over their treasures. In, e- in Exodus 12:36, <clears throat> And the Lord had given people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So in the Exodus, what the Lord does is he shakes the nation and then has his people go door to door, ask the neighbors for their gold, and precious things, and they take them with them, and they build the tabernacle, they build a house for the Lord out of the, out of the plunder of the nations. It's holy war that the Lord has done uh, on Egypt. Uh, Peter uh, Verhoff, he's a South African uh, theologian, uh, points out <clears throat> that the purpose of the shaking is to build God's house, to make it more glorious. So it's not a vain shaking. He's not just shaking stuff, you know, just to see what comes out of it, but the Lord is shaking things. Because he wants to build his house. The Lord is going to get his glory. And one of the ways he does this is through shaking things. He continues to say that uh, the treasures of all nations coming in, uh, 
This, this quote is, is not to be seen as voluntary offering, but a plunder of holy war. This is, again, similar to the Exodus, that God has waged war on Egypt for his beloved and has built his tabernacle from her spoils. So this is what the Lord is doing, is that it's, it's not that the Egyptians repented and offered these things to, to Yahweh. It's that the Lord took them because they're actually his, and Egypt was perverting it. And Egypt was hating his covenant people, and so the Lord took it. Pharaoh didn't hear the word of the Lord. Pharaoh didn't obey the voice of God. And so God took what he had given Egypt, the gold and the silver and the precious things, because those are gods, and they were being abused. When stuff is at its apex, it is being used to glorify God. God loves his creation enough that he wars against people that use it for blasphemy. He cares enough about his stuff. He, He didn't make the world, and then once it fell, he was like, Given up, you know, uh, you guys do whatever you want with it, and then we'll just wait for, uh, you know, a vapored existence afterwards. He, the hope isn't, we just read this in the Apostles' Creed, our hope is in the resurrection of the body. God's making all things new. He's shaking off stuff that's contaminating his good stuff, because he wants the stuff he made. This, when he said, let there be light, and there was light, and he said it was good, it's because the light heard his voice and obeyed it. So his stuff is good. His stuff hears his voice and responds. Even the rocks will glorify God if we don't, right? His stuff is made for his glory. John Calvin says that every blade of grass, every color that we see is made so that we would glorify the Lord. And so when the stuff is not being used in that way, when it's being used for blasphemy by bent and broken humanity, that's when the Lord shakes stuff loose so that he can bring it back into his house and have it glorify him. This is what he wants for his creation. He wants creation to sing and be united to the heavenly. And so he has to shake off the broken stuff. We see this portion, this is the portion that's alluded to in Hebrews 12:26 that I mentioned earlier, that yet once more, in a little while, I will shake. This is the portion that's cited in Hebrews 12:26. And so again, we have, we have shadows of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, in the peripheral as being the high priest that initiates a temple which results in shaking. So this Joshua high priest is going to start building a temple that's going to shake the nations and bring stuff in. Jesus, uh, the son of righteousness, the eternal priest, after the order of Melchizedek, is the one who inspects this same temple that is built under Joshua. He inspects this when he comes incarnate. He inspects it. He ch- throws it over the, the, the tables with the money makers, uh, the, the, sorry, with the, um, the money changers. And um, he, he, he kicks people out because they're, they're crowding the outer courts. They're, they're not letting the Gentiles into their, their space. Right? They're, they're defiling the temple. They're not bringing glory to the Lord in the temple. Jesus inspects it and finds it unworthy, and it's destroyed in 70 AD. This is, this is, he's shaking the stuff that's, not gonna, that's being used for blasphemy. He shakes that stuff loose because a new temple is being initiated with Jesus, a temple built of living stones, a more glorious temple that the, glory, the wealth of nations is brought into. This is the church. And now the church, the new Jerusalem, is this city that brings in the glory of the nations. This is Revelation uh, 21, 26. It tells us this. It's the church that is the center of worship. It's graduated, right? It was the, temp- the tabernacle, the temple, and now the church. That's God's glory, 
and his covenant are manifested in these places. It has grown and expanded. So now it's not just that God's presence is only in the temple in Jerusalem, but the temple walls have been shattered, and now God's presence is global. It's everywhere. Wherever his people gather, there he is. Where two or three gather in my name, I'm in their midst. And so this is what the new temple is now. This is what this is all kind of pushing to. Haggai is a mini climax on this broader trajectory, this greater crescendo into glory. It's going from glory to glory, death, resurrection, and glory. This is how God makes his house beautiful, right? This was a peak of glory. It was died in 70 AD and was resurrected in the church. And these things kind of conflate with one another. He fills his house with glory via plunder, presence, and people. And so he takes in things uh, and sanctifies his stuff that was being used for wickedness by saving people, by calling cultures and nations and homes and families into his, into his house. He brings these things into his house, uh, and, and that's how he makes his, his house beautiful. That's how God brings glory to himself, by growing and assembling um, God glorifies himself as their repattern through this world through worship. <clears throat> because the world is the Lord's, as Abraham Kuyper says, there is not one square inch over creation. Jesus does not say mine, or as Kanye West has recently said, Jesus is king. It's all his stuff, right? And so what do kings deserve? Gold, verses 8 and 9. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The phrase, the Lord of hosts, is used six times in this passage. And four of those occur in the final two verses. And this is when it's talking about the shaking. The Lord of hosts shakes stuff. The phrase, Lord of hosts, can also be rendered the Lord of armies, depending on uh, your translation. This kind of colors in this holy war uh, motif we talked about earlier, is that um, this plundering of nations is not voluntary offering of the stuff that they had blasphemed the Lord with. This is God taking, uh, through adoption, the stuff that's actually his. And so he brings in bent and broken sinners and their culture, nations and stuff, and shakes off the things that aren't worth his time, and then sanctifies and refines and makes weightier and more beautiful the glorious things that please the Lord, that bring glory to his name. So our God is a, is a God of conquering, of subduing, and of great power. His armies are so numerous and powerful, they can shake reality. This is the, this is the weight of the hand of the Lord, is that his, his host, his armies, actually shake reality. Reality. They shake heaven and earth. They shake the sea and the land. And we participate in this shaking. <clears throat> not sure if uh, anyone's familiar with the expression that worship is warfare, uh, but if we read the Psalms, we get a real sense that when we sing and exalt the name of the Lord, we're actually doing stuff to the powers and principalities. It's actually making, making the world different when we worship God. It makes us different. It makes us new creation. And it makes the things around us, the things we touch and interact with, different because we interact with them as worshipers of God and not as pagans anymore. In Psalm 8-2, Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Even our babies wage warfare on the wickedness. 
Our songs of praise are head wounds to the enemy, and when our babies squawk in the service, that's a bullet to the kneecap of God's foes. Through this conquest, the Lord is going to bring peace. And what better way to bring peace than converting all people to bend the knee to the one true king? He doesn't bring peace by killing everybody, by wiping out humanity, and just leaving the three people that actually got it right around, which, you know, I'm sure all of us in this room would be the ones left. Um, that's, not, that's not how he brings peace. He brings peace by making everyone his son and daughter. That's how he brings peace. He's, by, the, by the time this is all done, by the time the math runs out, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's how, he, that's how he brings peace, by making us his family, by adopting us, by making us look like his boy that he loves. The gates of hell will not prevail. Christ and his church are conquerors. They are a royal priesthood exercising dominion, and our weapon is hospitality and love and the gospel, the thing that cuts old men off from themselves and helps graft in themselves into, the, into true Israel, into the church, into new life, into new creation. That's our weapon, is, is the word of God converting souls and making them new people. The cycle of God taking his home from glory to glory continues into the new covenant. And this is why this passage is cited in Hebrews. This is not something that just ends once stone temples are done being built. This continues on into the new covenant. This is his house now is being taken from glory to glory. It didn't even just stop when the church was started. He continues to take his house from glory to glory. This is why there are more Christians now than there were a thousand years ago or a hundred years ago or 200. This is why he keeps growing his house. He wants more glory. God's going to get glory. We don't go to temple because we are the temple. We come together because God is fashioning his dwelling place through living stones. In Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The eternal word, now incarnate in Jesus, is the consistency of what God is building. So Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of this cosmic temple of living stones. All the people that are called Christians, little Christ, all of us little ones, are shaped into this new temple, this Holy city, this living place, this place, uh, this dwelling place for the most high God. And this is what we see in Revelation when John is told, come with me and I'll show you the bride of Christ. And then what does John see? He sees the new Jerusalem and what are written on the foundation stones, the name of the apostles. And what does Paul say here? That built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets is the household of the living God. So the bride, the new city, this new Jerusalem with no need for a temple because our temple is Christ, right? This, this is the glory. It's pushing into something bigger and, and greater. And this new city is what the wealth of nations is brought into. This is what God is bringing things into, adopting things into to make his house more glorious. So this is how it has changed from tabernacle to temple to congregation. 
This has always been built on the word of God. And that's consistently what's happening is Jesus, the word, the son, the second person of the Trinity is the cornerstone. This is how everything's framed. This is how we know the house is square. The foundation is solid because we have the word of God as the cornerstone, the thing on which the house is built. Everything rests on the word. Without the word, there is no house. There's no glory for the Lord without his word creating the glory, creating the new reality. So just as um, Jesus is the mediating grace that we get in incarnate, the word, the pre-incarnate word, um, was what repatterned and, and was given instruction to shape houses for God to dwell in. Moses, in Exodus, um, is, is given instruction on how to build the tabernacle. He's given really, you know, some people breeze through because it just seems so tedious, the instructions that Moses gets about measures of acacia wood and gold and this and that and the other. Um, but what we're seeing is that God wants a precise house. And so he's given instructions. He's giving blueprints to Moses. He gives blueprints to Solomon. And what does he do with the apostles? He gives them blueprints how to build the house of the Lord, how to build Christians, how to build people, right? This is what it's coming to, is that we're the things that need to be blueprinted to look like something, to look like what? To look like Jesus, so that we can fit in with the cornerstone and become a dwelling place for the Most High God. The glory of the house couldn't stay in Jerusalem. Jerusalem wasn't big enough. The glory is the consummation of heaven and earth. And so God is equipping the bridegroom to refashion earth through shaking and God's refining fire into a home fit for a king. This is what we're promised in Hebrews 13, verse 14. But here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. It's coming to us. The stones are being blueprinted in heaven, and they're being built on earth. The city is coming. The sky, the veil between heaven and earth is going to be torn when finally this place is ready for the, for the king to arrive, for, for the, the bridegroom to come and wed his bride. He's making all things new. He's shaking off the stuff that is not pleasing, and he's bringing glory into it. So as we close, I want us to hold fast to the way our God builds his house by bringing it from glory to glory. There's a way in which um, exercise uh, or physical labor is a really close comparison to how this works. Uh, when we, let's say, we're lifting weights or we're running, uh, we're splitting wood, is that at the end of the day, our muscles are torn. They're literally, when we, when we exercise and lift, our muscles are literally torn apart and broken and, and twisted and, and, and we feel the pain and it, and it hurts and we are sore and we have to recover. But when they're stitched back together, they're stronger than they were before. This is a real... This is a real close analogy to how this looks for us, is that oftentimes the things that are shaking around us to make things loose hurt us. It hurts to lose some things that are, are taken away. This is what sanctification looks like, is that as we're brought from glory to glory, is that we have to lose some stuff along the way. Right? Just like the, uh, you know, the silversmith, as he stands over the vat of, of boiling silver and he's, he's refining it, he's, he's heating it up so that it's, it's molten, and he's taking out the dross. He's carefully sifting out the impurities. And as he's looking over the silver, he's going to know when the silver is ready and pure, when he can see his reflection. And so as we're subjected to heat of trial, of trouble, of the discipline of the Lord, and Jesus scoops out the imperfections and the things that don't belong there, what he's looking for is to see his reflection. And so he's not going to be done with us until we look like him. We want to, God wants us to look like his boy. That's what he wants. And so he's going to continue to turn the heat up on us. He's going to continue to shake stuff away. 
And so we shouldn't be afraid or worried about troubles and trials, about hard work and good work, because that work makes us look like Jesus. The old broken and bent things have to be refined away. And this feels like discipline, judgment, and trial. But this is the loving hand of God carving out more space for his glory to fill. We ought not fear when the temple, our little portion of the wall here in America, seems meager or helpless or in disarray or compromise or apostasy. Our portion of the wall may indeed be in need of renovation. This might be a very real scenario. I think this is a real scenario that we're encountering. But we should take heart that the Lord is making you look more like the sun. That's why it's happening, is because things have to be shaken loose. We don't start off in perfection. We have to be shaken until we arrive into the glory and the presence of the Lord. The Lord has made promises to his bride. The bride does not lose. The bride is not in a perpetual decline, drifting further and further into gloom and dim irrelevance. There is nothing more relevant than the purchasing blood of Christ and the covenant-making power of our God. There are times, certainly of shaking, but they are in preparation of better things and better glory. Are we going to trust the Holy Scripture or the New York Times? When we feel the nations shaking, we preach the gospel. When we feel the legislators shaking, we evangelize our neighbors. There is room in God's house. He will get his glory. And so we need to work in that security. So this is how we win the war, by breaking bread and feasting with Christ by being at peace with God. So when we come to communion today, uh, we are identified as members of the living king and of uh, his, his kingdom, this universe. So let's partake with solemn joy and an optimism that God will be glorified today and into eternity.